It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I sometimes like to start with a nice, light sports item, something to get us going, particularly after the weekend. Hope you had a good one. Uh, This one is not so light. In fact, it's really troubling, involving the Washington Nationals. Uh, In all the years of living here, I became a big fan of the team, particularly uh, when they won the World Series in 2019 as underdogs and uh, got a chance to meet the general manager who came to Fox with the trophy, the World Series trophy. I've never actually gotten to see one up close, so I got the obligatory picture. Anyway, over the weekend, uh, there was an unfortunate incident outside Nationals Park where there was uh, some gunfire. Turns out, we still don't know much about it. Um, turns out the, the shots were fired from one car to another. One of those vehicles has been recovered by police. They're still investigating. They're asking public help. But naturally, you know, people in the stadium hearing this kind of freaked out. And a lot of people tried to get to the exits. Uh, some took shelter or tried to in dugouts because you don't know is the place under attack or is this just, you know, some kind of little gang warfare thing. Uh, the National Park is in a section of Washington. It's kind of, um, had been kind of a forgotten remote area of D.C. It's a bit more than a mile from Capitol Hill. It's been redeveloped because of the stadium, and there's now there's a lot of nice restaurants and, and bars there. Uh, so this was rather stunning. The good news is that was on Saturday, and the game was suspended. Uh, obviously, the, the Major League Baseball felt, or the teams themselves felt, that they could not continue. It went back and finished the rest of the game. Uh, the Nationals have been trailing by five runs anyway. But uh, yesterday, um, a lot of people showed up and showed up early and were hanging around in the parking lots and in the restaurants outside, um, almost to show their support of the team. that They were not going to be, you know, chased away uh, from being uh, fans of this team by this one unfortunate incident. And I thought that was nice. Uh, by the way, Jen Psaki threw out the first pitch yesterday. And let's just say she didn't pull a Fauci. She was uh, an athlete in college and she was a little bit uh, high and wide, but it reached home plate, and that's the important thing. Uh, Britney Spears making news just about every day now. You know the whole thing about the conservatorship, and she finally won a legal victory. Uh, she's gotten to hire her own lawyer rather than this other court-appointed guy who's made almost $3 million, keeping her trapped in this suffocating conservatorship um, that's basically overseen by her father. Uh, so she posted this Instagram video of her doing cartwheels and riding horses and just celebrating a thank you to the fans and all that. But then she posted a few more uh, Instagram messages and it kind of took a darker turn. She said uh, she went after members of her family saying, oh, now they're saying nice things about me. Where were they, and they when I needed help? Uh, she now says, I'm not going to be performing on any stages anytime soon with my dad handling what I wear, say, do, or think. I'm not going to put on heavy makeup and try, try, try on stage and not be able to do the real deal with remixes of my songs for years. So I quit, four exclamation points. But I don't think she's necessarily going to quit forever. I mean, if she gets out of this thing, I'm sure she would love to continue performing. She also went after her sister, Jamie. Uh, I don't like my sister showed up at an award show and performed my songs to remixes. They do not exactly have a great relationship. So the Britney Spears drama goes on and on and on. I got a lot to get to today, so let's start with number one. And it's a whole bunch of COVID-related stories. I mean, the COVID story, controversy, debate, uh, media coverage is coming back big time because of an unfortunate 
rise in cases. Now, I have to jump in right here and say, you know, there's nothing like the peak of the pandemic. But looking, you know, I look at these numbers religiously every day. And yesterday, 31,000 new cases in the United States is far less than the 200,000 plus um, that we suffered through last year. But that 31,000 new cases is an increase of about 130% over just two weeks earlier. And that's a national average. You go to certain states where um, the vaccination rate is low naturally and there are these pockets. But even in other states like California, we'll get to in a second, and we are seeing because of this Delta variant and because so many people are, are still hesitant or refusing to get the vaccine, uh, this thing is still out there. And we know from experience from last summer, you know, that this 30, if it continues at this rate, this 30,000 cases could become 60,000 cases. I don't think it's ever going to get back to the horrific situation where the country essentially was shut down. But now, as of the other day in Los Angeles County, one of the biggest counties in the nation, a new mask mandate is in effect. Yeah, it went, to, went into effect at midnight Saturday, designed to limit the spread of COVID-19. But naturally, everything has to be, you know, the subject of a political battle. So the sheriff in Los Angeles County, his name is Alex Villanova, or Villanova said, He's not going to enforce it. And by the way, what it says is that it's just that you have to wear masks indoors, whether you're vaccinated or not, in public places. So it doesn't have to do with, you know, in your house or your backyard or outside, in public places. Well, it's still the case in a lot of areas, in most areas, where if you go into certain supermarkets, drugstores, uh, retail stores, etc., that you're either encouraged to wear a mask or you can only wear not wear a mask if you're vaccinated, but of course you, nobody checks to, for your little card. In any event, this sheriff says uh, he doesn't like this new order by the county's leaders, and he's not going to enforce it. Uh, he says it's not backed by science. We will not expend our limited resources. And his office instead is asking for voluntary compliance. Well, I don't think a bunch of people should be arrested, but under what system does the sheriff get to say, I'm not going to follow these orders? Is that going to be allowed to stand? Now, you know, in reality, you do these things as a deterrent. You're not, you know, checking every people. No sheriff's department in the world would have enough uh, resources to do that. But obviously, he also decided to make a political statement. He, in his wisdom, doesn't agree with the policy set by the county supervisors. And so he's not going to do it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, speaking of sports... Coco Gauff, uh, the phenomenal young female tennis player, will not be going to the Tokyo Olympics, which I guess start this coming weekend because she's tested positive for the coronavirus. Last week I talked about um, several members of the New York Yankees getting COVID-19 and they were all vaccinated. Well, Coco Gauff has it now. Very disappointed. She says, I'm disappointed to share the news that I've tested positive. I won't be able to play in the Olympic Games in Tokyo. It has always been a dream of mine to represent the USA at the Olympics, and I hope there will be many more chances for me to make this come true in the future. There's also a couple of people who have tested positive for COVID within the Olympic Village. So, you know, it was controversial. Remember, this was supposed to take place last year, got postponed, the Japanese government really wanted to go forward with it, now it's banned fans. I mean, it's really an awful situation for athletes who either have gotten it or have to worry about getting it. The fact that they, you know, you know, I mean, Japan spent zillions of dollars on this and they can't sell any tickets because of COVID. And over in Britain, 
Boris Johnson, who, as you, I'm sure you remember, already had COVID and had a pretty serious case of COVID and was hospitalized for a time, uh, while well, the Prime Minister has now agreed to self-isolate after being exposed to COVID-19. And that's a flip-flop for him because early yesterday, his office put out a statement that, saying that he and the Chancellor of the Exchequer would not isolate after being contacted by the UK's you know, tracing program to limit the spread of the virus. Um, even after daily cases reached a six-month high on Saturday, and yet Britain was lifting most of its remaining restrictions. So it's just kind of like that decision when Dowdley was made, when it seemed like the pandemic was at a very low ebb, and now a number of cases is rising. Boris gets exposed, says, you know, look, I mean, I could see the argument, which is that he already had it, so why should he isolate? But what happened is uh, there was a lot of political pressure, a backlash from the Labor Party, the opposition Labor Party. Um, Boris's cabinet minister was forced to defend the decision on a bunch of Sunday TV shows. Um, and three hours later, Prime Minister Johnson's office announced that he's reversed the decision. Uh, Boris put out a video on Twitter saying he'd only briefly considered entering the testing program. Okay. He caved, and look, these things are symbolic, and it's probably good that he did. Number two, very much related. Let me start with this. This morning on Fox and Friends, you know, which is a show that Donald Trump went on a zillion times, both before he was president, when he was president, and, you know, he's generally seen to have a conservative bent. I don't think there's any secret about that. Steve Ducey, a longtime co-host there, uh, and he said things like this before, but this morning he said he went on a bit of a tear about people who have not gotten the vaccine for COVID-19. And some scientists are now calling this, or politicians are now calling this, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And he recited some of those statistics that, you know, virtually everybody who's being hospitalized now or is dying now, certainly those who are dying now, are unvaccinated. It's like 99 plus percent. You can't even say, oh, it's the overwhelming majority. And that's virtually everyone. And Ducey says, if you have the chance, get the shot. It will save your life. That's what he told viewers. And I mention this just because there's been the New York Times and others have been beating up on Fox. Well, Fox is part of the problem. Fox is encouraging this vaccine skepticism. Well, there's a lot of voices at Fox. And there are, are, are some who are uh, certainly raising questions. And they say, look, not against the vaccine, but it's legitimate to raise questions. Um, I, myself, have said on the air, I've said on this podcast numerous times, I've said in my columns that people should get vaccinated. Yes, it's an individual decision. I get that. I also continue to be amazed at how entwined this has become with politics. And I'm sorry, it is a fact, according to most polls, that the, the higher percentage of people who are vaccine hesitant or, I don't know, what's the word for refusing the vaccine? Just not going to do it. Um are on the Republican or conservative side. They may not be Republicans, but they seem to be more conservatives who don't trust the Biden administration, don't trust government in general, don't trust the media. That's the common thread. Now, there are some people on the liberal and Democratic side who think that as well, but it's for, for, uh, it's substantially down in terms of percentages. Now, yesterday on Media Buzz, uh, the segment is online if you didn't have a chance to see the program, I had Corey Lewandowski on, former campaign manager who still works with Donald Trump. He's the chairman of the Make America Great Again action pack. Um, and 
we talked about a lot of things. How is it helping the Republican Party for Trump to constantly be talking about the stolen election? I mean, I get all the emails from the former president because I'm a member of the press. And, you know, they're, they're coming like multiple times a day now uh, as he uh, um, tries to uh, continue to keep this alive and to talk up every, you know, sign of what he sees. And even uh, at his CPAC speech, he says, oh, the media says it's unproven. Well, we have all this evidence. Well, it is unproven in the sense that no mainstream body, no official government audit has shown that Donald Trump won any of the states that he contests that was actually won by Joe Biden. In any event, I asked Corey this question, and here's how he started out. I said, I agree with the former president. The media never really gave him full credit for creating and carrying out Operation Warp Speed. I mean, after this became a big issue, uh, once Biden took office, you know, there was a piece in the New York Times and a piece in the Washington Post saying, you know what, the, the Trump deserves some of the credit. But the, by and large, you know, Biden is reaping the benefits, or was, for carrying out the program. Of course, there wouldn't have been a Pfizer vaccine or a Moderna vaccine if it had not been for the crash program initiated by President Trump. It's one of the things he did right. There are a lot of things wrong, and we can go on and on about January 6th and what he's doing now. But that was something that he did right, that a lot of media folks said would never happen. But then I said to Corey, why doesn't he help complete this achievement by pushing more forcefully for many unvaccinated Americans, many of whom support him, to go out and get these shots? And what Lewandowski said was, look, the president has taken the shot himself. He leads by example. I was going to jump in, but I didn't want to interrupt him. Yeah, but when he got the shot, and he was still president, and Melania got it too, it wasn't public. We found out about it later. So there's no video of him, you know, getting the jab in the arm and that sort of thing. Uh, and he didn't talk about it. It came out later. Um, I know full well that former President Trump, on several occasions, has said, yes, I support the vaccines. People should get it. But he hasn't exactly mounted a campaign for that. Um, of all of these email blasts that go out to the press, the vast majority of them are about the, what he views as the rigged election, not about the vaccine. Sometimes he sends one out saying, you know, without me, there wouldn't be a vaccine. And okay, he's entitled to say that, but then I would like to see him take the next step. Uh, he can go, uh, he can hold the press conference. He can do more television interviews and make that the main theme. There's a lot of things he can do to make news. Anyway, um, Corey went on to say, I don't know what more he can do. It's not exactly like the Biden administration is asking the president, President Trump, to come out and sit down at the White House. Uh, even if he did, I don't know if President Trump would do that. And I jumped in and I said, wait a second. He can do this on his own. He doesn't have to wait for Joe Biden's invitation. Remember there was a PSA with the former presidents. Even the Biden administration says they didn't do anything. They had Obama, they had Clinton, um, they had Carter. And they had, um, who am I leaving out? George W. Bush. And Trump didn't participate in that. I think he may have said he wasn't asked. I'm not really sure. And then Corey just came back and said, and said he did it by example. He got the shot. He told people to do it. All you can do is have a conversation with people. If people don't want to get a shot, this is still America and they can do that. And I agree with that. It's an individual decision. Certain people may have for particular health reasons. Um, it's a, certainly is true when you're talking about teenage kids. You know, they've got to make up their own minds. I just think people in the media, the responsible thing to do is to publicly speak out. So I asked Corey that question. Anyway, the reason I bring all this up is, I, then I got attacked on Twitter, like, 
Did you know that Donald Trump on such such a date said people could get the vaccine? There was a lie put out there that then lots of people who didn't even see the show would just repeat as if I had mistakenly said that Donald Trump has never spoken out in favor of getting the COVID-19 vaccine. I didn't even come close to saying that. I said, why doesn't he now take the opportunity that we have to kind of hit a wall and only about, you know, what, three to hundred to 500,000 people a day are getting these shots to speak out more forcefully. That was the quote. And, you know, and then you put that on Twitter and people just ignore it and they just say, continue to say, oh, you know, Kurt said this, but is he aware that on such and such a day and so forth. All this brings me to something that heated up over the weekend that we talked about extensively on Media Buzz, and that is the Biden White House and Facebook. So I think I got into this a little bit on Friday's podcast because you had Jen Psaki, uh, the press secretary, stirring this, uh, what became a very big controversy when she said, when she told reporters Friday at her briefing, um, I, th- I think actually this was the day before, that the White House is flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. And they had the Surgeon General out on all these shows, Vivek Murthy uh, saying, he put out a whole report on media disinformation. And a lot of it was an attack on Facebook. So a lot of people, particularly on the right, read Saki's comments as being that Facebook and the Biden White House have joined hands and are together deciding which comments to purge on the vaccine rather than allowing a free and open debate. Uh, she later came back and she got into it with Fox's Peter Ducey on Friday. And he said, you know, how long has the Biden White House been spying on people's Facebook posts? And she shot right back, well, that was a loaded question. And this is not spying. This is um, just as you would deal with any media outlet. Jen Psaki said, and complained about something that you thought was inaccurate, they are dealing with Facebook, which is, of, of course, a giant media company, and trying to get them to be more aggressive in purging what the Biden White House at least believes to be disinformation. So there's a lot of talk about collusion. Well, they're colluding together. And, of course, Facebook is so left-leaning. It's going to do whatever Biden wants. It's already, you know, it continues to ban Donald Trump and all that. But then, over the weekend, a reporter gives a question, throws a question at President Biden on the fly. What's your view of Facebook's role in this? And Biden, who usually chooses his words so carefully, says, they're killing people. They're spreading misinformation and they're killing people. Now, that seems a little overdramatic to me, but I guess you could say that if people go on Facebook and see that if you get this virus, uh, a, a chip will be implanted in your brain and Bill Gates will be able to control your thoughts, Um, and you believe that, then maybe you could end up getting COVID-19. Nevertheless, so uh, the question I asked is, is the Biden White House colluding with Facebook, or is it at war with Facebook? And then Facebook came back, and there was an unnamed Facebook official telling NBC, you know, the Biden White House is trying to make us a scapegoat for missing its vaccination goals. And I think there's something to that. I have no doubt that they are legitimately concerned about misinformation and disinformation, and that's why they're going after Mark Zuckerberg's company. And Zuckerberg, of course, they're not transparent about this, and the Biden White House says they haven't turned over information just about how they do this and and all of that. So Facebook has achieved the rare goal of pissing everybody off. The right hasn't liked Facebook for years. Now the left doesn't like Facebook. Now the president is accusing Facebook of essentially being an accomplice to murder. Um, It's a mess. Uh, and it's complicated, and that's why I'm going to keep talking about it. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment.
Number three. Uh, I can see one Donald J. Trump uh, being very interested in the following story. Uh, a report came out by the American Association for Public Opinion Research. Uh, the Washington Post and others have a good write-up about it, saying that the public opinion polls in the 2020 presidential election suffered from errors of unusual magnitude, highest in 40 years. They looked at a huge number of national polls, a lot of state-level polls that, that looked at the presidential race, and this also affected you know, the races for governor and senator and all that. And they concluded that surveys overstated the margin between Biden and Trump by 3.9 percentage points in the national popular vote and 4.3 percentage points in state polls. And that's important because that was used to make projections about the Electoral College. And in other words, the polls projected Biden as having a much bigger lead than he ended up having when the votes were counted. Uh, here's Josh Clinton, a political science professor who chaired this task force. There was a systematic error that was found in terms of overstatement for Democratic support across the board. Well, I could just hear, uh, you know, Trump saying fake polls, fake media, fake news. You know, it, it's not that this was deliberate. Now, my reaction to this was, well, sure, a lot of conservatives or Trump supporters don't want to be surveyed by pollsters. They don't trust pollsters, and that probably in, in, in led to a skewing. But this, that explanation actually is knocked down in this report, along with a bunch of others. And so they, ultimately, they couldn't figure out why. They just like, oh, it's not this, it's not this. I don't know, it could be this, but it's not this. Um, so unlike in 2016, when late deciding voters broke heavily for Trump, that didn't happen last year. In fact, most voters were locked into their choice well before Election Day. The election never really moved. I mean, you could see in June that Joe Biden was going to win barring some, you know, because it was partially because of the pandemic, it was partially because of Trump, it was for a lot of reasons. Um, another factor in 2016, the, the pollsters didn't adequately weight their samples. Remember, you know, you, you survey a thousand people, that's a big poll, but you got to make sure you have adjustments for partisanship, for education levels. But that didn't happen. They did adequately weight the samples by education in 2020. Uh, they didn't make assumption. They didn't make wrong assumptions about the composition of the electorate. Uh, no group was systematically underrepresented or overrepresented. Uh, now, did some supporters of Trump and Biden tell posters how they would vote, but only not vote? That wasn't shown to be a problem either. I don't know how exactly how they could be so sure of that. In any event, it was a bit of a fiasco for the polling business. And I just think, in the age of cell phones, when it's harder and harder to get people even to answer the phone that that's contributed to the decline. But I do have to acknowledge these mistakes always seem to go in one direction. They always seem to project a bigger Democratic lead than turns out to be the case on Election Day. All right, number four. Uh, some journalists who don't have a whole lot to do are now worried about 2024 uh, because, you know, it's a permanent campaign. And Political has a piece about Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence got about 1% at the CPAC straw poll, you know, you know, is that a representative group? It's obviously conservative actors who travel to Dallas, I guess, in this case, to listen to Trump and a lot of other GOP and conservative luminaries. Um, and look, I've long felt that Pence is in an impossible situation right now because of the recent history. Uh, so what Plinko did is contacted, you know, various county chairmen. Here's a guy who's a vice chair uh, of Iowa's Scott County, I don't imagine you have a whole lot of support. There are some Trump supporters who think he's the Antichrist. 
boom, that's your soundbite. Uh, this person, whose name is Raymond Harry, said uh, Pence did a good job as vice president. He called the vitriol directed at Mike Pence kind of nutty, but still, I don't see him overcoming the negatives. So, by most accounts, said Politico, both in Iowa and nationally, and you know why Iowa is important if it keeps the first in the nation caucuses, Pence is dead in the early waters of 2024. He's in a political no man's land. Well, I mean, this is the problem, which is, you know, first of all, He's now 62, so he's not the younger generation candidate. Secondly, um, he didn't do what Trump wanted him to do on election day, which is to his everlasting credit. He didn't have the power to do it. He said he didn't have the power to do it. Trump trashed him, and that, of course, uh, all led in part to the hang Mike Pence uh, at the riot at the Capitol. Um, But he was extremely loyal to Donald Trump for four years, you know, often uh, paying a price himself politically, as somebody who obviously wanted to run for president in the future. Here's another quote from Republican strategist Sean Walsh. He's got to justify to the Trumpistas why he isn't Judas Iscariot. And then he's got to demonstrate to a bunch of other Republicans why he hung out with someone they perceive to be a nut job. This is a guy who worked in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush White Houses. So that's pretty colorfully put. I mean, it's so early that in a way it's kind of ridiculous and, you know, is Trump going to run? Personally, I don't think so, but, you know, he says he might. If Trump doesn't run, then you've got certainly Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and, you know, 15 other people I haven't mentioned and 12 people who nobody is not even on anybody's radar. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. But naturally, the former vice president of the United States, who would still be vice president if the ticket had won, and if the election had ended differently and Trump had conceded gracefully and we didn't have January 6th, you know, might now be in a strong position. The guy who, you know, served alongside President Trump who would now pick up the Trump mantle. But because of what happened, the you know, tragic things that happened at the beginning of January, uh, I think he's in a kind of a very difficult position. All right, number five has to do with ties, as in men's neckties. And I have a little bit of a bias here, which is I hate I hate wearing ties. I mean, it just it kind of strangles you around the neck, and I've never really seen the point. I mean, there's one exception to that. When I'm on television, I like the way you, know, you can kind of make a fashion statement with a nice tie that matches your suit, and that's different. But just sitting around the office, um, I've many times wondered, and I, I, I'm the classic like newspaper guy. I keep it loose around the neck unless somebody important is coming in that I got to talk to. So that's my view. Now we get to this piece in the Atlantic. You know, is this is a lot. There've been a lot of like uh, pieces about post-pandemic attire. Will we ever go back to the old ways, what we used to do without even questioning it? So the piece starts out by saying the last fall, the Financial Times wondered, is this the end of the tie? More recently, the Wall Street Journal asked, will ties ever be relevant again? I didn't know they had to be relevant. I thought they just had to look good. All right, for more than a year, many men who once felt bound to wear ties have shown up on Zoom each day wearing polos or even T-shirts. I've done that. Now that they have tasted freedom from the necktie and have seen their colleagues, clients, and bosses doing the same, how can they ever go back to working with their necks encumbered? Good question, Atlantic. After this pandemic, many fewer men will have to. The arc of fashion has always bent toward informality. It's true for women, too, and there's a whole lot of stuff about wearing formal dresses and pantyhose and high heels and all that. But a major disruption like a war, recession, or global pandemic can accelerate that natural change. 
Ties, as an everyday accessory, have certainly taken a hit from which they're unlikely to fully recover. And you know, it is interesting when you think about men's attire. Um, it, you look at old photographs from the 40s and 50s, and you know, all the men, even sometimes just walking down the street, not in an office anywhere, wearing hats. Everybody had to wear a hat. Harry Truman wore a hat. Along came JFK. He didn't like hats. He didn't wear hats. A lot of people say he killed the hat business. Well, he certainly crippled it. But, you know, if it hadn't been him, probably would have been somebody else. All right, back to the dilemma of the ties. The deeper functions that ties have long provided, I've never really thought about this, such as social signaling and personal expression, will be absorbed by other garments. But ties will continue to be worn on the most formal occasions as quirky accoutrements for the self-consciously old-fashioned or whimsical. In other words, neckties are the new bow ties. Well, that's true. Bow ties were, you know, went out of fashion, but then certain people wore them just to make a statement or look cool or whatever. Uh, so there's actually an economic impact here. Spending on clothing overall fell during, you know, all of these many, many months when people were working from home. Um, Brooks Brothers, J. Crew, Banana Republic, all particularly affected. With an estimated 25% of us now wearing a different size than we did pre-COVID, whether bigger or smaller, uh, we're going to have to buy new clothes eventually, but they may not be the same things we wore, we were wearing before. Um, many employers now more open to flex time. They're relaxing workplace dress codes to allow leggings, hoodies, really, t-shirts, and sneakers. Well, sneakers make sense. Who wants to walk around in those uncomfortable dress shoes? Many men are likely to leave behind the stiff-collared dress shirts and the ties traditionally worn with them, just as some women may ditch pantyhose, skirts, and high heels. So I think that'd be a great development. Oh, you want to wear a tie? Great, you know? And, you know, I have a nice tie collection and just being in the TV biz. But before I was on TV, I used to keep a bunch of ties in the office and I wouldn't wear one in the office. I just said, screw it, life's too short. But then if I had to go over the hill or interview some congressman or go to some setting, panel discussion, I'd put on the tie, come back to the office, take it off. Now... It looks like you don't even have to do that. But these predictions could all be wrong. I don't know what the workplace is going to look like in six months. I do think there's not going to be as much office space because a lot of companies have learned that by using flex time or work at home or Zoom or whatever, um, they don't have to pay as much rent for as much office space as they have, and that could hurt some downtowns. I mean, people who have been to Manhattan lately tell me that it hasn't come back to the point where it's this crowded, messy, melting pot uh of a downtown, certainly in midtown Manhattan. So a lot of this has yet to play out. If you're homeless in the podcast, you can wear whatever you want. Thanks for listening. I'll just remind you that you can subscribe at Apple iTunes or a lot of other places or on your Amazon device. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.